Hello, and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I am uh, your host, Ray Gerard, in uh, studio with me today is your co-host, Mr. Bob Enicus. Thank you, Bob, for being here again. And it's always a pleasure, Ray. I, uh, I look forward to this. This is a, this is a fun thing to do. Now, pretty soon, we're going to have to be calling you Father Bob Hennekes. Well, that's two years. A lot can happen in two years, and, and hopefully that goes in two years. But, and uh, I'm sure yeah. a lot of good things will be happening in that time as well. You bet. But this is St. Paul's Letters to America, and we examine things that, go, that happen in our world today in the prism, in the light of the teachings of St. Paul. Why? Because these teachings are true. They do not change over time. They are the truth. They, they, they are the true inspired word of God. And we look at these uh, different events going on in our world today in that light. All right, so what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about uh, vending machines that dispense free crack pipes and lip balm that can be used uh, to help people when they want to uh, use uh, crack, crack and crystal meth. And these vending machines, you can all you have to do is you put in your zip code and you get these paraphernalia items. And it's all courtesy, and it's all free. It's courtesy of the New York City government. So we're gonna, that's what uh, we're going to be talking about today. And uh, we're going to do it, uh, as we always do, we're going to start with uh, a letter uh, from St. Paul, a writing from St. Paul. And today um, his writing is this. What I do, I do not understand. For I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So then I discover the principle that when I want to do right, evil is at hand. But I see another principle at war with the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. St. Paul is talking about being at war, that there's a war being raging in his own mind. In his own mind. He has trouble controlling what he himself does. I mean, aren't we all in control of ourselves? Do we really have the same kind of problem that St. Paul does? If St. Paul were to write a letter to America, would he not tell us the same thing, that any of us are at risk of you know, experiencing this kind of war and succumbing, perhaps, to the evil inclinations that we have um, so that perhaps we do not do what we want, but we do the evil that we do not want. All right, so how does this apply to what we're talking about? Well, first, let's talk about what's going on in New York City. So the uh, city of New York put out um, a a press release, a statement, uh, dealing with why they're starting this program on these public health vending machines. So they said that they are in the midst of an overdose crisis, uh, which is taking fellow New Yorkers from us every three hours and, um, and is a major cause of falling life expectancy in New York City, said their health commissioner. And they also cited, as reasons for what they're doing, a report, a scientific report, um, that is actually the compilation of another, a number of other reports. There's an article written, a scoping review of implementation considerations for harm reduction vending machines. Harm reduct, reduction vending machines. That's a nice sounding title, Bob. Um, and so this was published, uh, the harm reduction in the harm reduction journal. Anyways, um, so this was this study was uh, this article was done after the others looked at twenty two different studies, and so that sounds impressive. Twenty two scientific studies that are being used as the justification for these public health vending machines, which allow people which, which provide people with some of the tools and implements they need uh, to practice a drug habit. Sounds, Ray, like let's say we have an issue and we have people drowning in swimming pools. So you have a couple ways to do this. There's lots of ways to do this. But one thing you could do is we're going to 
shut down all pools. That way we will never have anyone drowned from, from swimming. Now, that wouldn't be a good thing. Swimming is important. Uh, many people fish and for their living and do that sort of thing and need to know how to swim. Others love to do it recreationally. I think you have to be careful that you're not causing more harm with what you do uh, and what, what the world looks like by making a, uh, a mistake like this to all of a sudden start offering drug using paraphernalia and to ease the opportunity to do that seems like we may have have a mistake uh might might be a bit bit off off the edge to make things like that easier i you know one of the experiences i have is i was uh went to live in europe for a period of time and very much enjoyed it three years mostly in the netherlands but a lot of visiting and when i was there i encountered vending machines that sold beer now they didn't give it away but they sold beer so you could be five years old and walk up with enough money and buy yourself a beer there was absolutely no warning signs or any that i could read at least no warning signs that said you have to be 21 or 16 or 12 or 2 but anyone that wanted could just pop a couple coins in this and then pop a beer and away they'd go i think we want to be careful about what we provide people rather than trying to really deal with the issue that, that is there, which is the use of the drugs. Why, why are we there? And should we not be doing something there? So I, I look forward to exploring this. This uh, seems like a, a wild start. Well, that's precisely, you know, that's precisely the issue of what you're hitting on. We need to be careful that we're not making it easier for people to do the things that maybe is not the best for them. You know, did these authorities in New York City give due consideration to this other side of the coin that you're talking about, Bob. Um, Do they have a sense of good versus evil? Does that enter into our discussion anymore these days? Do we really, are we so concerned with, you know, trying to remove the stigma? That was one of the other things uh, the health commissioner in New York referred to as reducing the stigma that's attached to these people. I mean, certainly... If somebody's a drug user, maybe somebody is a homeless person, they're living on the street, and they've got a habit, something of that nature, people can have a tendency to judge them and look down at them and step over them and, you know, if they need some help, not try to help them. And, of course, that's not what Christ tells us to do. But uh, so removing the stigma from people, sympathizing with people, caring for people, all good intentions, good ideas, good motivations. But again, if we help them, as you say, um, you know, in doing something that they shouldn't be doing, you know, how are we, you know, extending them a good with one hand and, and then at the same time with the other hand, extending them something that is, that is bad? Um, these people that might have a drug habit, that might have a drug addiction, are they at war with themselves? Do they have some tendencies inside themselves saying, you know, I'd like it if I could get off of this drug use that I have, but I maybe can't help myself. I'm doing what I do not want to do. And if they do, then when the city puts out these vending machines, what is the city doing? You know, what, what, are, what is the city really doing? Anyways, so we've got a pro and a con to this. We've got there's two sides to this coin. But let's look at the let's look at the positive side just first to start with. And as I say, the city of New York referred to this this health study, and it report it it cited twenty different twenty two different reports um, that spoke to the principle that these vending machines are a good idea. So I looked a little bit further into this this article that examined these twenty two studies, and it talked about that among the studies. Um, there were out, the outcomes were mixed, um, and some of them had inconclusive results. Some of them said that these vending machines were clearly effective. Okay, but then dig a little bit deeper. What does effective mean? Well, effective could mean things like the access to syringes. These things were effective at uh, creating greater access to syringes. That was effective. Um, Expanding after-hour availability 
for things was also considered effective. Um, allowing greater anonymity so people didn't have to, you know, they could, you could, as you say, anybody, a kid could come up and get a beer. You, you know, you didn't have to ask somebody. You didn't have to show yourself to anybody else uh, to get these things. So greater anonymity was a mark of effectiveness. Um, decreased syringe sharing and disease prevention uh, were also deemed to be effective. Now, if you're going to decrease the sharing of syringes and perhaps reduce diseases uh, that people might get by using somebody else's syringe, that's a good. I mean, that's that's a good thing. You can also decrease the sharing of syringes by decreasing the use of syringes, but that's another story. Um, it talked about one article. It seems like one out of these 22 uh, stood or, or, or showed or demonstrated significant reductions in opioid-involved overdose fatalities uh, following uh, naloxone dispensation, otherwise known as Narcan. Okay, so 22 studies, one of them showed significant reductions in opioid overdoses because of the distribution of Narcan. Okay, so it hardly seems to me like this then speaks directly to the distribution of crack pipes and lip balm for crack and crystal mouth use being effective in terms of what? I'm, you know, if you're going to, I mean, you can expect this, right? If you're going to distribute Narcan, one of the things these vending machines do that besides distributing Narcan is they also distribute these uh, fentanyl test strips so you can determine whether or not there's fentanyl in, I guess, the drugs that you're taking. So anything that can warn people, hey, there's fentanyl here, or Narcan, which can, if you happen to have you know, some fentanyl in what you're using, uh, that can perhaps keep you from dying, okay, good things. But as you're saying, Bob, if you, on the other hand, do things to increase the drug usage, well, no, that's a problem. So we've got two things from these. We've got inconclusive results, or certainly not results that would be anything beyond what we'd expect. I mean, if you're going to say, hey, fatalities go down when you distribute more Narcan, sure, you, would, you, know, I don't, you wouldn't need, you would think, a study to tell you that that could happen. So if you're going to distribute Narcan or drug test strips, sure, good ideas, helps people. But if you're going to distribute things that help them practice their drug habit, how is that good? And they cite this particular study for the proposition that these vending machines are a good thing. But the study doesn't seem to say that. I mean, the Narcan part of the vending machines, okay, yes. But the drug habit uh, facilitation, it doesn't, you know, I mean, they use this study to say that that's, that's scientifically proven. It doesn't appear from the study that that's the case at all. So the question then is, do they really even consider this, the, the question of good versus evil? You know, Ray, um, in my first year at the seminary, that was a topic we had a lot, good versus evil. It was really a deep understanding in theology. That's a big part of the question. And one of the things that we spent a lot of time talking about is, is our origin, the beginning of the scriptures and the first people on earth, Adam and Eve— and what they did, and what God's position was, and what he desired. And so what God desired was to give us this world that we didn't have to worry about drug addiction or alcohol addiction or any kind of sin whatsoever. He wanted us to live intimately with him and wanted the whole world to have this beautiful, glorious world in a garden where we all lived with him in harmony. Yet because of the mistake, the because of the forbidden fruit and wanting to have the same knowledge. In essence, the, the forbidden fruit is we wanted to play God. We ate the fruit because we wanted to be as good as God. Satan was brilliant. He, he suggested he doesn't want you to eat the fruit because then you'll know everything he does. And that, that was how he got Eve to sort of go ahead and try this fruit. And so we were supposed to have a perfect world, but we don't. Instead, what we have is a world where we fight sin on an everyday, every moment, routine basis. We have that in our hearts and souls, and now we have to decide. We wouldn't have that had it not been for the fall. But instead, 
We have this battle, every one of us, all the time. Um, each one of us fights this. Now, lots of different people have different things. Some fight sexual abuse and, and sexual attraction, some drugs, some trying to possess too many things and money and the, the evils that money can do. Now, money's a good thing. It can buy you health insurance. It can buy you clothing, but it can also buy you many other evil things as well. And all of those can be very hurtful to us, our society. And so to me, rather than trying to figure out how to put things out there like paraphernalia that may or may not help, we need to be going back to the root of the issue is that people have trouble with drugs. They have trouble with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, all of those things. And how do we help them with that as opposed to facilitating the process of what this evil is doing. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hearing that as I'm, as I'm listening to you and thinking about that. Yeah, you know, we talked about um, how do we do that? I mean, you know, we talked about the, this, this, this seemingly good idea of removing the stigma. And yeah, if it helps us not to, if we're aided in learning that we should not judge other people, we should not look down at other people, that we should desire to help other people, that's a good thing. But when you remove the stigma, you also, uh, in a way, remove even the sense of sin, the awareness of sin. You, you start to think, you know, well, this is okay. I shouldn't look down at these people. Now, you know, when you say you shouldn't look down at these people, the question is, like, why? If you shouldn't look down at these people because we're all part of the body of Christ, you shouldn't look down at these people because these are all people that are created by God. They have inherent good in them. They were made in the image of God. And that if I want to imitate Christ, I've got to love my brother, no matter who he is. If I'm going to follow the example of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, uh, now St. Teresa, um, the poorest of the poor, the most downtrodden of the downtrodden, you know, they could be covered, their whole bodies could be covered with, with sores that people normally wouldn't want to touch in any way. But I'm going to do it anyways because I've got the love of Christ in my heart like she did. Good things. Wonderful things. If I learn not to look down at them because I don't even think what they're doing is wrong anymore. Abusing a drug is not wrong anymore. You know, I, I had alcoholism in my, you know, the, in my family. I lost a father to it. I lost an older brother to it. Um, my older brother was lost at the age of 29. I don't think God made him to die at the age of 29 from alcoholism. Um, now he, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I mean God, God help him, God rest his soul. Um, he, was a, he was a good guy, but he, he got, you know, obsessed with this, this this addiction, there's there's reasons for it, and but that's another story, um, and it's a common one. You know, people follow in the footsteps of a parent. They do something. You know, people. You know, you have a parent who practices abuse on a child. That child learns, then turns around, and when they get older, maybe they abuse their child. I mean, it's not an uncommon story. It's the story that involves good versus evil. We get caught up with the evil. We got these wars going on. In our minds, if you're a victim of abuse as a child, I'm sure that when you abuse a child of your own, something about that doesn't feel right. I'm sure that there's some war going on in your head. Something doesn't feel good. You don't want to do it, like St. Paul was talking about. But you somehow, for some reason, you do it anyway. Why do you do it if you don't want to do it? Because you can't control yourself. And we're giving out crack pipes and such, and we're helping people learn not to control themselves. We're reducing the stigma, but we're also telling them it's okay. There's no sin here. There's nothing wrong here. Well, my goodness, how does that help anybody? It doesn't help the victim. It doesn't help the abuser. It doesn't help us. If that's not wrong, then other things aren't wrong. We don't even feel the need to worry about good versus evil. And my goodness, if we get to the point where we don't worry about sin, we don't worry about good versus evil, where is that going to lead us? Um, Most of the programs, Ray, um, 
friends of mine that are that are alcoholics that you talked about describe the disease as when they go to the beach they look at the ocean and they think of an ocean of beer and are worried that the ocean of beer that they're looking at isn't large enough i can drink that up and consume it the the thought process is that i want to take that and consume all that's there by facilitating that by facilitating the illness to help make it easier doesn't go back to stopping the addiction and stopping the pattern. What it does is it allows it to go further. It allows it to make it easier. And certainly that's the thing we need to do is to help them stop, to help those, not to judge them, right? Because every one of us, I think St. Paul said that so well at the beginning. He talked about himself, but the inference is that every one of us has these evils. Every one of us has these difficulties. None of us, except Jesus and Mary, are two, two greatest people to ever walk the earth, didn't have this fight against sin. The rest of us all do. And we have got to figure out how to stop that. And by trusting in God, by using his strength to give up these things that we need can be the path forward. All the rest, to somehow not understand his glory, his love, and his guidance as the way through the evil one is crazy. That's, that's I, in fact, I'd use the word arrogant. Mm-hmm. That means that I'm so smart, and this is not the case for me. I, every day I remind myself that the devil and evil are a heck of a lot smarter than I am, much smarter, much more capable. And the only chance I have not to sin is not from me, not from my own willpower or anything else. It is from the grace of God and to trust in the grace of God. And by doing this, by facilitating, we're eliminating the fact that this is bad, and we're eliminating the capability to stop people from doing this and to push this evil away. We're facilitating what the devil wants to do, which is to get us addicted on drugs or addicted on alcohol or addicted on abuse or whatever it is. We don't think in terms of good versus evil anymore. Yeah. We just don't think of it. We don't think of a sin versus not sinning. We don't think of the devil versus relying on the strength that can be found through through Christ and his mother. We don't think in those terms. Redu- removing the stigma means that uh, it also means that if you talk in those terms, you're stigmatizing. If I say a drug user is not good, that they're doing bad. Now, that the person is good. You know, they're made in the image of God. Um, can't judge the person, but you can judge the action. They're not doing good. They're sinning. They're doing evil. Oh, you're stigmatizing. And we're afraid of that. We are afraid of that. We don't talk about that. If you were to say this New York City program has elements of evil in it, you will be hounded, you will be ridiculed, castigated, you will be called out. You're stigmatizing. You, you know, you're, you know, you, 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 you don't have sympathy for these people. You know, you're a bad person yourself. And so afraid. So we don't say anything. And, and the people that are doing these, that put out these vending machines, they're seen as the sympathetic ones, the kind ones, the good ones. And why do we have a tendency to even think that? Because we don't have a sense of good versus evil anymore. We don't have a sense of sin versus virtuous conduct anymore. We don't have a sense of things through a Catholic prism. And the Catholic prism, it's Christ's prism. We don't have a sense of looking at the world and looking at ourselves through Christ's prism like we should. If we did, we might be horrified at what at our own silence, that through our silence, maybe we're helping these conditions to exist and maybe even to, and to grow, perhaps, through our silence. Do we not need to speak out? Speaking out with love and with kindness, but do we not need to speak out? Do we not need to not be silent anymore? I mean, how strong is our sense of good versus evil? How strong is our sympathy and our love for that other person and what they're doing to their souls? Do we think in spiritual terms anymore at all? And don't we need to? You know, this idea that, you know, we're losing this sense of of right and wrong and good versus evil. 
It's all around us. We picked this story about the, the vending machines because not only does it, does it point up this idea of good versus evil, but it points out how sometimes it's difficult to separate the two and to really, you know, we have to have a sense, a good Christian sense of good versus evil in order to be able to separate things as we should. I mean, people like in New York City, the people that are putting out these vending machines, I'm, do, I'm sure they're doing it. They think they're doing well. They think they're, they're helping people. Or they're trying to help people. But, you know, uh, by the same token, they're going to be hurting these people. At the same time, they're helping some. Maybe they'll help somebody avoid a fentanyl death from an overdose. But at the same time, they're going to be doing evil because they're going to be helping somebody continue to practice and uh, to grow their, their drug addiction. They're going to be doing evil at the same time. They're going to be doing it. Um, and this is all around. You know, we're getting sort of immune to this. We're getting sort of cold to this. It's all around. I mean, I pulled up this story on this, a New York, an article on this vending machine thing in New York City. And there are all these other little uh, captions of other stories on this very same day in New York City. Here's one. New York City teen shoved onto subway tracks, was heading to get her hair done. Uh, woman attacks strangers, lunges at mother and baby. Uh, New York police, the NYPD arrested a man who tried to snatch a little girl from his mom in Brooklyn. There was just a mom, and she was, uh, she had uh, her two little kids. She had two little kids with her. And this guy hardly, you know, without any, I mean, without any provocation and seemingly without any reason, just came up and just tried to grab her seven-year-old child away from her. And the mother initially kind of lost the battle, but then uh, continued to fight and, and was, su- succeeded in being able to hold on to her kid long enough for this guy to have to run away. I mean, my goodness, what's going on? You've got people, these are gratuitous acts of violence and violence against children, violence without any rhyme or reason, violence with no rhyme or reason. You shove somebody on the subway tracks. Why? I mean, this idea. And how do we react to these stories? When people hear about these stories, the devil is loose in New York City. That person is evil. That's horrible. That's horrific. Don't hear that. I don't hear that. What you hear is, well, the story gets reported. And it gets reported matter-of-factly. That's it. And that's it. We're becoming numb to this. This is evil. Where's the good? Where's the good versus evil? Where's the, where's the contrast? Where do, where's the horror at this? If we react with numbness, uh, it's just another one of these stories. Is it because we really don't have a sense in our heart that we feel in our heart for these, these, you know, these people that are being victims from this sort of thing. I mean, how much do we feel it? How much do we have a sense of, of good versus evil? You know, and, and uh, it's all around. It's all around. For example, San Francisco. Stores that have recently closed in San Francisco's downtown Union Square, famous part of San Francisco. Oh, it's a beautiful area, or at least it was. Um, you've got people leaving there. Old Navy's, you know, is closing. Saks of Fifth Avenue, Amazon Go. They had to, Amazon had a had a brick and mortar store. Whole Foods, Office Depot, Nordstrom, uh, Banana Republic, Athleta, Crate and Barrel, Abercrombie and Fitch, DSW Shoe Store, Disney, Marshalls, The Gap. I mean, my goodness, they're all leaving. Why? Well, Walgreens closed five stores in San Francisco. Um, because of shoplifting. There was a, as a worker at Old Navy, so Old Navy just closed. There was a worker at Old Navy, and he did not want to be identified. Uh, but he said that uh, shoplifters, on a given day, you'd have 12 to 14. On a given day. Wow. So, what, one every hour? Somebody's Ooh. just walking in, helping themselves. Um, he said this in the last two days, the store was hit 22 times. In the last, you know, two days. And he said, they're just super comfortable. They go in, 
and they just take what they want, and they're just comfortable doing it. There's no sense of right and wrong. There's no sense of good versus evil. They're okay with it because they've been told they can be okay with it. They're told really to be numb to sin anymore. Um, the old Navy worker said, shoplifters, however, we're, we're going to be kind to these people. Gonna, you know, I mean, the, the policy in San Francisco, like in Los Angeles, is, hey, you know, we're not going to prosecute you if you steal less than $1,000. We're not going to prosecute you. Why? Well, we're, we're doing it under the kindness of our heart, the goodness of our heart. Because a lot of these people, well, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet. They can't get by. Uh, they've been, you know, victimized by society. And so society should provide for them. So we'll just let them take what they want. Um, in a way, it seems like it's being done out of a kindness, out of a sympathy for the fact that these people have had, you know, tough circumstances in their lives. But we're making them into people that just shoplift all the more. And they become numb to sin. There's nothing wrong with it. And so what happens when you become numb to a small sin? Well, then you start committing other sins. Is that not true? This old Navy worker said the ship shoplifters regularly curse and throw things. This guy, this worker, just a, a, an employee at, at a store, he says he fears for his life. He says, I don't feel like fearing for my life every single day. I just hope that it can get back to normal, the way it used to be when people were out shopping, having fun with their families. That it's not normal anymore. This is all around us. So the normal is now sin is acceptable, and I hope we still consider shoplifting or stealing somebody else's material wrong and a sin. Um, it's actually one of them listed in the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. So hopefully we have that, that view that that's, uh, that's wrong, but somehow we're accepting that. We're allowing that to occur. Encouraging it. Encouraging it. So if you don't push it down, it is going to pop its ugly head up because, and again, Ray, I, I go back to the fact, let's make sure we all understand, every one of us, including me, has a great desire to sin. We have that in our heart. We have that in our soul. And now you've got to try to figure out, how do I avoid that? How do I avoid sin? And the answer back is not loosen the laws and allow anyone to sin without consequence or without issue, but to help people understand that that is not what should be done, to get them going a different direction. We are missing the boat. Now, Pope Francis asked the very same question that you just asked. And he said, there's only one way to do that. There's only one way to do this. He said, only true love for God and neighbor can destroy the chains of greed, lust, anger, and envy that enslave mankind. He said, true love is true freedom. It detaches you from possession. It rebuilds relationships. It knows how to welcome and value the neighbor. It transforms every struggle into a joyous gift and makes communion possible. He said there are many types of slavery, both interior and exterior. He talked about interior prisons. He says slavery to one's ego can tie men and women down more than a prison. The Pope explained that the, quote, deadly sins such as greed, lust, Gluttony and sloth can turn people into slaves of their own passions. That's exactly what St. Paul was talking about. This is not something new. This is something that is part of the human condition, as you're, just as you're talking about, Bob. It's, it's in us. Um, but, but God is also in us. And the only way we can fight the one is to rely on the other. The only way is, the only way is, to, is to have true love for God and neighbor. This is what we have to fight with. We have to understand. We have to be aware that there is this battle between good and evil. There is sin. Not everything is good. We can't just go around thinking everything is fine, everything is good, and if you say something is not good, you are judging people, you are looking down at people, you are stigmatizing people, you are hating people. No, because you— I mean, by, by helping people not to do what is harmful to them and to others, 
That's true love for God and for neighbor. That's the only way. And that's very difficult to do. It's, it's very hard, one, to put our own desires aside that we have to sin and to be wrong and to do things, but then to go out to someone else and help them. You know, in the, in the scriptures, it talks about what do you do if someone does something wrong? And it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful quote where the answer back is when someone does something wrong, you go to them and you explain to them that it's wrong. You don't just let it occur. You go help them because they might not understand that whatever it is that they're doing is wrong. So you, you do that for a child of your, for you, your own you child, bet. wouldn't you, you? You help a kid understand that smacking their brother who has an ice cream cone and they want it is the wrong thing to do, right? You don't want to let that happen, so you tell someone. And then if they don't respond, then what you do is you get others, and as a group you go together, right, and help them understand that this is missing. There's power in numbers. You you help them understand. But, but again, you're trying to explain this to someone. And then the last step is if they still won't listen there, then you ask them, well, maybe you need to step out for a while outside the church or outside the community to figure out why it is that you're you're not getting this, and and that's the idea. But or to or to help those people that are still in the community and help people in the community. If you can, if they won't accept the help, then sometimes the only thing you can do is make sure that they don't spread the harm. Spread spread the harm around. But we seem to be saying, nope. You see somebody do something wrong, spread the harm. Spread the harm. Turn your head. Don't look at it. And I think part of that comes from I'm a sinner. I see that. I don't. Who and I don't I? want to. And I don't want to think of myself as a sinner. Right. And who am I to tell somebody else that they're doing something wrong when you know I'm I'm absolutely evil as it is? We need to help people understand, and we do that as parents. You you brought that up. That's absolutely beautiful. We somehow, for the good of our children, figure that out. Now we do a lot of stupid things as parents as well, but most of the time, as parents, we're trying to do the right thing. And if we could do that with our loved ones, others. Wouldn't we be a lot better off? You know, let's let's um, let's take this a little bit in another direction. Let's let's go backward a little bit. These things don't happen overnight. This this climate that we're living in, where you know we're being told, well, it's it's okay to let people do anything, and whenever you tell somebody, you know, that they need to be restricted in what they can and can't do, you know, you're 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 the old you know the the old Catholic type of person. You're the old church. You're you're harsh. You're unloving. You're uncaring. You know. And where does this come from? It doesn't just happen overnight. It takes years for things to develop to the point now where go ahead steal. It's okay. Uh, you know. So to the point where now stores can't even stay in business anymore, and they just simply have to leave. It doesn't happen overnight. How about we go back? There's a guy who wrote a book. It's called Beyond Good and Evil. He wrote a book, Beyond Good and Evil. No, you don't have to have this sense of good and evil. That's an old dogmatic notion. He railed in the preface to his book about the dogmatists, people that insisted there's dogma, that there's truth. He said the most dangerous of errors hitherto has been a dogmatist error, namely, Plato's, in Plato's invention of pure spirit and the good in itself. But now it has been surmounted when Europe has now finally rid itself of this nightmare. The man who wrote this is Friedrich Nietzsche. He wrote this over about 140 years ago. Um, and he's also famous for proclaiming that God is dead. Um, but uh, his whole... His whole argument in this book is we have to get beyond this notion of good and evil. Stop thinking in terms of good and evil. Stop it. Just don't even do it at all. That's a dogmatic, old-fashioned notion that really puts people in chains instead of liberating people. He said modern men, with their obtuseness as regards all Christian nomenclature, have no longer have the sense for the terribly superlative terribly superlative conception which was implied which was implied to an antique taste by the paradox of the formula God on the cross. Hitherto had there had never and nowhere been such boldness and inversion, nor anything so dreadful. A transvaluation of all the ancient values. God on the cross 
was bold in its inversion of ancient values. And Europe had been suffering under this for centuries and millennia. And now, uh, on the eve of the 20th century, Nietzsche was glorifying the fact, he was taking glee in the fact that Europe was getting, was getting past this. Of course, shortly thereafter, we had World War I and World War II, uh, but so what? Anyways, um, he said that the slave, the people that were enslaved by these dogmatic notions of Plato and then the Christians that were to follow, these enslaved people desire the unconditioned, even in morals. You have to get beyond good and evil. Free yourself from these, these chains, these, these, bond, these bonds that, that tie you down. We've got we to gotta be liberated. We've got to be free. Otherwise, you know, we're just, we're just living out these archaic notions. And so, okay then we're better off then once we get past the notion of good and evil. Beyond good and evil is the goal. We've got to get past this, and then we'll be better off. Then we can shoplift. Then we can throw people onto subway train tracks. Then we can get crack pipes for free so that we never get past our, our drug addiction, and we can still you know, stay enslaved to these things and do these things that we do not want to do when somewhere, somewhere in the back of our mind there's a desire to do good, but we really can't just help ourselves to do it. Somehow we're just, we're still, we do the things we don't want to do. We can't control ourselves. And oh, but isn't it good that we've got the city of New York that's going to help us to stay enslaved? Nietzsche talks about slavery there's a St. Paul talks about a different kind of slavery, a slavery to evil, getting beyond the good and evil. No, that's pointed out. We have to look for it, examine it, not only in the things around us, but in ourselves and find it out and be aware of it so that we can at least engage in the fight. If you're not aware of it, you're never going to fight it and you're going to lose. You're going to be lost before it even gets started. You know, I... Th- I think, I know for myself and I think for others, it's true. If you do something that's truly evil and it works out and it's successful for you, you think about that, or at least I do, and I think what occurred, and I think the evil that I've done, but that the success that it drew, right? I was able to make a a deal work. I was able to get a permit for something. Whatever it is that, that, that I did that was wrong or evil, I was in turmoil because I knew that I had done something wrong, yet I somehow made that work. And inside my heart, there was a battle going on. Inside my soul, there was a battle going on, knowing that I had done something wrong. Like if you make a deal to the point where you are taking advantage of another person, you're, you you're going to profit, you're going to get some money, and maybe a little bit more than maybe was, was appropriate. But, hey, you're doing it— because you got to make the best deal, even if you're going to, you know, take advantage of the other guy. Because hey, it's for the good of my company. You bet. So you, you do that, and then you have a deal where you look at somebody and you're very open with them, and you talk through the deal, and you say, "Here's what we need to watch, and here's, and we're going to have to figure out how to split profits on this area because we're unsure where they're going to be." And you walk away saying, "I not only pulled this deal off, but I did it in a fair way to myself." to the folks, the contractors, to the the people that are going to purchase whatever it is that's being made, and you put all that together. And in your mind, in your mind, even though that second deal didn't make you as much money, didn't make my company as much money, I felt so much better. I, I, I felt as if all good things were occurring and not this evil. Each one of us has that in us. Some of us at different times in our life, have shut that off. We've figured out how to blind ourselves to those evil, but it's still there, and we still know it. And I think each of us, if we really check our heart, would know that that is not what we want to do. You know, this whole idea of, of good versus evil, and these we're talking about these little things that go on in, in you know, our own consciousnesses. Like, okay, I'm making a little more profit than I should. Things that nag at us, whatever. Okay, so there's those, those kinds of evils that we all know, that we all experience. Are there bigger evils? Well, of course there are. If, you know, you talked about Bob earlier about the fact that 
you know, in theology, you study a lot about good versus evil, that this is a, a primary kind of a thing. This is a foundational kind of a thing. So the small evil, well, but there's also big evil. I mean, if, if evil is a truth, then there's going to be big evil. There's going to be uh, transcendent kind of evil. There's going to be evil that, well, that is it's, it's spiritual. There's go- evil's going to be a thing. It's going to be a real thing. Just as God is good, that he's universal good, he's, he's universal love, well, there's also evil. I mean, if if there was no evil, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't have these pangs of conscience. We wouldn't be doing things we don't want to do. Um, if you really have doubts about whether or not evil per se exists, oh, I don't know. Talk to uh, Monsignor Stephen Rossetti. Who's Monsignor Stephen Rossetti? He's an exorcist. Um, he uh, he talked about, uh, he, for example, he's been an exorcist, you know, for the, in the church for some years. Had an occasion where a time where he was, for, he was trying to help somebody, uh, a possessed individual. He saw this person's blue eyes turn yellow and the pupils shrink down to mere dots. They looked precisely like the eyes of a hissing snake. He talked another another case when a, a man's entire eyes turned jet black. His eyes. You couldn't see the pupils from the, from the white. They were just all black. Um, he's got other stories as well. Um, and he says, you know, that the exorcisms, he said, have grown exponentially in just the last decade or so. He said the United States is racked by discord and a moral crisis. We're racked by a moral crisis. And exorcisms and possessions are growing exponentially. Why? Could it be because maybe we don't even know, we're not even aware of the difference like we used to be between good and evil? Um, he made a rather disheartening, discouraging prediction. He said, I think it's going to get much worse before it gets better. He happens to be a licensed psychologist. He's also an associate professor at Catholic University of America. Um, recently wrote a book, Diary of an American Exorcist, Demons, Possession, and the Modern-Day Battle Against Ancient Evil. He's experienced doors banging, TVs turning on and off, victims communicating in ancient languages, a lot of the things that you think about. Um, he says he hasn't seen personally, you know, the kind of crazy levitation you'd see in the movie Exorcist, but he's seen enough. Um, you know, he's, you know, there's a woman, he's sprinkled with holy water and her body began to spasm. I mean, I don't think if you'd asked him, hey, is evil a real thing? Is the devil a real thing? I don't think he'd have any problem giving you an answer. He's seen it. Just because we don't see it, just because we don't go, you know, like like some of these, these priests that perform these things, and they're very trying experiences for these priests. They're not easy things to do. And just because we don't try to put ourselves in his position and, and go out and try to help, you know, people that are possessed and we don't see these things doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to him when he says, I have seen it. Um, he also was helping a woman one time. Now, this is kind of scary. He's helping a woman one time. And um, he found out that her dad was receiving snarky text messages from demons. The texts were a typical demonic rant. She belongs to us. His father, her father, he's trying to help this woman from a possession. And her father, and I guess this was transpiring over some months. And his father would get, her father would get these text messages. She belongs to us. Um, now, here's a curious little backstory. As a child, the father had dedicated her to Satan. As this woman grew up, she found her way to the Catholic faith. The demons didn't like that. And so, um, you know, they acted out 
against her trying to turn away uh, from the devil and turn towards the Catholic faith, and she needed help. And so Monsignor Rossetti uh, did succeed in in helping her. It took months. And she's still not completely free of it. She still has struggles. devil doesn't give up. Uh, but she's much better than she was. This stuff is real. Oh, yeah. Evil is a real thing. We can close our eyes to it. We can, you know, allow ourselves to become numb to it. We can maybe sit back silently when, you know, New York City helps people with drug paraphernalia or when shoplifting is allowed to occur and not say that these things are evil, that we're not helping people, that we, that we can be trying to help people. Uh, and maybe, you know, we could, it, maybe we can help people, we can give them Narcan, we can, you know, give them drug test strips, but not give them crack pipes. We can become aware to good versus evil. We can have a sense of what's going on in the soul of those other persons at the same time we're aware of what's going on in our own souls and try to guard against evil and promote the good whenever we can, with whoever we can. Anyways, um, that's what we have today for our, our discussion about some of the things that are going on in our world and, and uh, whether or not St. Paul can help speak to it at all. And as always, he can. And uh, we hope you found this provocative, hope you found it a little bit enjoyable, but we're going to close this particular program like we always do, and that's with a prayer. And we're going to ask Bob, uh, who has been ordained a deacon and is now in training. They've got to teach him a few things still to become a priest, but uh, nevertheless, I'm sure he can help us with a prayer. We can do that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you made this world, and you made it perfect for us, yet we blew it. We did not accept your perfect world. We wanted to be like you, so we ate the fruit and became in trouble. We sinned. We'd like to think that we can fix all of that ourselves, but we can't, Lord. And so we ask your love and blessing. We ask you to come to us, to help us through this. Allow our desire, our will, to follow in your son's footsteps and follow him and always follow you. That's the only way that we can beat evil, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We are not strong enough. We're not successful enough. We're not capable enough. It is you that is there to pull us out of the difficult difficulty and desire. And we ask your love and help and, and care to be able to take care of ourselves. And then not only us, but then to help others, to help others along the same path to come to know you and to come to know the good that you've put in each one of us. And we pray all of this in the one that you sent to turn the world around, to give us salvation. And that is your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the, the Son, Son, and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. We do thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. And until the next time, God bless. <laughs>